one day I kind of just got super psyched. And I, I don't actually know why, but I just got really, really interested. And I wanted to go climbing all the time. And, you know, it would be 8 o'clock at night. And my dad would come home from work and be like, let's go climbing. And then, you know, I had to be in bed in an hour. But I'd go climbing anyways and go climbing for like four hours. And just be super psyched. So yeah, I guess, I guess that was when I got really excited on climbing. This is Joseph. You're listening to Breaking the Boy Code. I'm Jonathan. Welcome to the podcast. One of my earliest memories with Joseph is at a park with a few of his friends. I don't know, he was maybe 10 years old, and he spent most of his time climbing trees. I don't know exactly when I realized that this had become like a major passion for him, but it's been present between us for at least the past two years. We've gone climbing together, we've played on his pull-up bars, I've watched him compete in competitions, and... There's something captivating about watching a young person discovering a life passion. I guess this would be my fifth year competing. Um, so I I just climbed kind of at the gym, didn't really train that much. But yeah, it's only really when I started competing that my actual training went up. And, you know, I was actually training and doing drills and learning more about competing and whatnot. Whereas before it was kind of just going to the gym and having a good time and seeing if I can send some hard climbs. The coach at the time when I was on the team was, she is, uh, she's compete, competed at Worlds. Um, so she's obviously really good and is psyched and, you know, interested uh, about competitive climbing. And so I just thought, you know what, I'll try it out. And so me and my friend at the time on the team, we were in the same category, uh, so same age range. And we went to the comp, and I remember seeing all these big kids who I didn't know were in a different age category than I was. But I was like, man, everybody's so big, they must be so strong. And I had no idea what I was doing. I showed up to the comp and was just like, ooh, here's a climb. Let's try to get to the top. And it almost was better that way. Uh, like my whole first season of competing, I didn't know anything. Like there are only four comps in the comp season for a given uh type of climbing. So there are only four bouldering comps that you'll go to. Um, and so you don't actually learn too, too much. But those first four, I wasn't really worried about anything because I had no expectations. I just kind of showed up and tried to climb stuff. Whereas now it's more difficult because I have expectations of what I did last year and the year before that and the year before that. So, yeah, I I look back on my first year of competing and 
Yeah. It's it's kind of fun to look back on just like climbing without any worries, just trying to get to the top of the wall. Something that interested me about Joseph is that he's not just a passionate athlete. He's an extremely skilled athlete. And what that means is that even at a really young age, he's navigating the expectations, the pressure and accomplishments of competing at a really high level. Like he looks up to world-class climbers. He's surrounded by professionals in the climbing industry. It's his hobby. It's his job, actually. It's his goal in life. And it's also where he's learned some of the most critical aspects of who he is. He's learned what matters to him, what balance looks like in his life. Yeah, I usually do slightly higher in nationals. I don't know, it's it's kind of strange. I, in local competitions, like just in Toronto or Ontario, I'll do worse than I would do in nationals, which is kind of strange. But I don't know, I kind of, I kind of think of it like you'll jump as far as you need to. I don't know, I, I feel like I've encountered where, you know, I need to jump a gap and I'll make it perfectly, but like just enough room to spare. And then I'll do that again on a bigger one. Um, but yeah, I kind of, you know, last year, for example, I did worse, like the worst I've ever done in a competition, in a local competition, which is 12th or something. I did terrible. Um, and then I actually had my best year Yes, like last year, uh, I came, I don't remember what I came in nationals, but I didn't come last in finals, which would be sixth. So I think I came fifth or fourth, which was cool because I thought I was going to have a terrible season. I mean, the other competitors are definitely a part of it. And I mean, self-induced stress of trying to do well and yeah when I think about it it all seems kind of pointless you know I'm competing for fun I'm not getting anything out of it except for fun it's not like I'm sponsored or being paid to do it so I don't actually have any pressure to do well but it's just all self-induced pressure to do well which yeah I kind of you know I see other people doing well or in their warm-up, you know, they do more push-ups in their warm-up than I do. And I think, oh man, they're so strong. And, you know, that's happened to me before. I've seen people who are really, really strong, but I beat them by a lot in comps. Uh, I mean, I obviously, I have goals to make it to the world stage and do well in the climbing community. And maybe, like, make a name for myself so people, like, know who I am. Or even just to, like, be strong. Like, I see people on the world stage or just, like, around the gym. And I'm like, man, they're so strong. That's so cool. And then I'd be like, man, I want to get stronger. And then, yeah, like, competing is, is a way of measuring how strong I have been. Or am getting, because it's a, it's a measurement of how well I do. But then at the same time, it's just a measurement of how well everyone else is doing also. 
So, yeah, it's it's competitiveness against myself, but also against other climbers. You know, some seasons I've been, like, it's hit me, like, man, why am I even doing all this? You know, if I'm just doing it for that that measurement of how strong I've gotten, then what's really the point? Like, some seasons I've been, you know, so stressed about comps. Like, I'll train as soon as, well, I mean, I'm training all the time, but I'll really kick into a training gear once school starts. And you know, start preparing for the first comp. And as soon as the comp's done, I'll either do well or I'll do badly or mediocre. And based on how well I do, I'll train to that effect until the next comp. And yeah, it's just like, it's back-to-back training, measurement, training, measurement. And I feel like Often I have no space to just kind of sit back and relax and just climb for fun. Uh, So I've definitely felt that in the past. And yeah, like you said, especially watching other things, you know, it kind of takes the fun out of it, which, which I definitely feel. But yeah, I feel like I'm somewhat more relaxed, but not now. Yeah, I don't know. I think I think I'm just enjoying what I'm doing at the moment. You know, working out and getting strong and biking and climbing and just kind of doing the things that I do and then making sure that I'm not just yeah, like I'm still working out and being productive but in a less controlled or stressed manner. You can kind of hear that he's experienced overtraining firsthand, that he knows what it's like uh, to train too hard or to let training dominate his life too much. It's a really important balance to find, particularly as a young person. And it's not easy, right, to walk the line between school, sports, interests, your family, major life goals on top of like growing your body, for example, getting enough sleep, being in relationships with people, figuring out who you are as a person, you know, that adds up. And it's worth saying that in the time I spend with him, Joseph is remarkably balanced. Maybe that's because I don't see him as much when he's in comp season, but look, he, he likes singing. He's a talented artist. Uh, He's an avid reader. He goes to concerts. He rides his bike. He hangs out with his friends. Well, I'll let him tell you the rest. Yeah, I mean, I started biking a lot this summer, like trail riding and mountain biking, uh, but then also dirt jumping, um, partially because I didn't have anything else to do, like I couldn't go climbing, Um, but also just because, you know, I I can't climb and train all the time. That's not an option. I have to do other things. Uh, so, at, to some level, it's something else. You know, cross-training. Biking is really good. Yeah, I also just I also just really enjoy it. It's a lot of fun to, you know, go out into the valley and be there in 10 minutes and spend three hours of my day out just in the valley. 
you know, I feel like if I, if I was just training and climbing all the time, I feel like some of the fun would be taken out of it. Like if that was my entire life and all I did, you know, going to sleep at night knowing that I was just going to get up the next day to do the exact same thing that I did before, I feel like it kind of takes some of the freedom out um, or some of the fun. And and people definitely do train all the time, but I don't know. I feel like it's nice to do other things without just doing that. It seems kind of strange to just focus on doing one thing, even if you know that you're going to want to do that one thing with your life. Like, I know that I'm going to like do climbing as... Yeah, climbing is going to be my life to some extent. But if climbing is just my life and I don't do anything else, just to make sure... Like, I'm not even I'm not even in open category yet. I'm still in the youth categories for competing. Like, I'm still, I'm still competing as a child. I'm not competing as, like, a full-grown human. Um, so, you know, some people that are in open category and are trying to go to the Olympics, then, you know, training all the time and focusing on climbing for your life is probably the thing to do. But right now... I don't know. Also, there's only there's only so much training I can do for it to be actually productive. Like if I'm training every minute of every day and you know, meditating and doing yoga and working out and doing all this stuff, you know, I might just end up injuring myself in the long run. And then yeah, like getting injured because now I'm not I'm not in my full grown-up body yet you know like I'm still my growth plates haven't fused so if I'm training all the time and my body has no time to grow I'll just end up injuring myself listening to this from a parenting or coaching perspective I hear the importance of balance in training but another major element to elite sports is competition itself, and in particular, navigating the emotions that come along with it, particularly failure. Probably the worst thing is just not doing well in comps. And that doesn't last very long. Like, the most that I'll be sad after I did badly at a comp is like a week. Yeah, I don't know. It's probably, it's probably just comps. Like, I've, I've, obviously this is very particular to me, like I was talking about expectations. So even though I did actually do well compared to what I've done before, it seems not that great. Um, so yeah, again, like kind of self-induced stress or, you know, disappointment um, when really I actually did reasonably well. My second year competing nationals. Uh, I didn't make it. Oh, actually, in, in qualifiers in nationals, I did really, really well. Um, and well, I think I came in sixth or something. But if I 
did one more climb, which I almost did. I couldn't do one of the moves. Uh, I would have come in first, uh, which would have been the best I'd ever done and was kind of unimaginable for me at the time. And I realized that and then kind of just got in my head uh, for semifinals the next day and was like, man, I have to do really well because now I actually have a shot at coming first. Um, yeah, and I kind of just got like really in my head and didn't end up making it into finals, which I'd done the year before. So yeah, that's that's probably my worst time, even though, like I said, it's not actually that bad, but compared to the year before, it wasn't great. But yeah, I think, yeah, like my, my self-expectations or possibilities to do well kind of just messed me up. And then I ended up not doing well. I just kind of drove home from Quebec after that. <laughs> but yeah, that was the that was the first time that really like mental game started to come into play. Because before, like I said, in my first comp season, I was just climbing and not really worrying about anything. Whereas in my my third year, so after that. I kind of started to like, like subconsciously worry more, um, instead of just showing up and climbing. So that definitely started like a journey for me through like my mental competitive aspect, uh, which wasn't really a thing before that. Um, so yeah, I was kind of, I was kind of confused and annoyed after for a while kind of just like what happened because I didn't I didn't really understand what happened I just you know I knew that I didn't do well but I didn't know why you know I remember thinking after like man like those climbs were so hard I just you know like my shoes just kept slipping off all the holes like what was happening yeah like I couldn't I just couldn't climb uh and I didn't know why and then I realized after a while, uh, somewhat with my with my dad's help coaching me, like, dude, you just you were just worrying too much about doing well, and then that actually made you do badly, which is kind of a strange thing to comprehend. It's, you know, you want to do well by not worrying about doing well, but yeah, I don't know. It seems kind of like a like a paradox to not worry so you can do well. I think it's definitely a part. I don't think you can really go through a whole athletic career without seeing some sort of failure at some point. And, you know, there are some people that are just like good all the time. But there's they still have moments um, like, yeah, I've, I've failed or not succeeded in multiple different scenarios and ways, but I don't know. I think analyzing it afterwards and finding out why it happened or just recognizing sometimes that happens. Like sometimes you wake up and it just, uh, 
it doesn't feel right. And sometimes you can change that and make it feel better again. And other times you just kind of feel not yourself all day and then you end up doing badly in the comp. Or it kind of comes together and then you do well. At this point, I want to put a bunch of pins uh, in the air. Joseph talking about the role of coaching. In his case, that's his dad, and I think we'll come back to that. Um, but the role of coaching and getting him to where he wants to be and debriefing his success and his failure, uh, we'll put a pin in that. Joseph talking about the mental aspect of competition, put a pin in that. Joseph talking about that idea that you're always going to fail somehow, put a pin in that. And overall, that Joseph is navigating these things at the same time that he is developing into a young man. Put a pin in that. Because I want to bring into the conversation Jason Rogers, who's the writer behind The Mandate Letter, a newsletter on masculinity. He's written for Men's Health Magazine, New York Times, and he's also an Olympic medalist. So it's such a gift to be able to accompany Joseph's experiences with the perspective of a veteran athlete who has the level of wisdom that you could only really get after centering your life for decades on athletic performance, on training, on competition and failure. So I'll start just by letting him share his story. The first half is about his journey in finding his place in the sport of fencing and how that brought him to the Olympics. And the second half is about his experiences, both the devastating failure and the ultimate redemption that he experienced at the Athens and Beijing Olympics. Well, I started fencing at age 11 in Los Angeles, where I grew up. The short story is that I didn't love it at first, but then I had this amazing coach come into my life, a Romanian man named Daniel Costin, who just like breathed life and humor into fencing for me and was always cracking jokes, was always making it fun also happened to be an absolutely world-class coach. And I found myself on this like rapidly moving escalator, you know, from competing at local competitions to, you know, national competitions in my age category, winning those competitions, all of a sudden kind of like making our, what we call our sort of like junior national team kind of before I even expected that that should be on my radar and then competing on a world stage. And I made kind of a very last minute decision to go to the Ohio State University because um, a coach had been recruiting me there and it was someone I'd worked with. And he was the guy that I felt could get me to the Olympics. There were lots of other world-class coaches, but there was something about the way that he interacted with me and the way that he made me believe in myself that I was like, I want to be with you. You know, I want you to be the person that, that sort of shepherds me from here on. And I, I immersed myself in this training and it basically doubled in intensity. He's a former Olympic gold medalist. Um, I pushed myself pretty hard, you know, just to, to sort of, you know, live up to what I thought his expectations were. And, you know, pretty quickly I was like putting myself on the footsteps of, you know, the Olympic team. And I busted my butt and I was very lucky to make uh, the 2004 Olympic Games in basically my, what would have been my sort of junior year in college. I was so unprepared for 
the pressure that comes with being at an Olympic Games when you are accustomed to uh, competing in environments where there aren't that many spectators and there aren't TV cameras and there isn't all this kind of hoopla. And so I got there and I was facing a veteran Italian former world champion in my very first match, basically my Olympic debut. And I got on the fencing piece, which is what we call the sort of competitive arena. And I, a couple of touches uh, occurred and something kind of funny happened with the way the referee was judging the points. And all of a sudden, my brain and body just shut down. And I effectively had a panic attack in the middle of that match. And, you know, I felt like I couldn't breathe. I couldn't think. I, my body went just on total autopilot in the absolute worst possible way. Obviously, that's not great from a competitive standpoint. And my, my opponent, who, you know, wasn't inclined to take any mercy on me, basically just obliterated me. And that for me was like the first moment where I was, I was really in a dark, dark place with respect to how I felt about sport, how I felt about myself whether I wanted to continue in sport at all, I just was beside myself. And I left those Olympic games feeling like a complete failure, feeling like, why did I even do this in the first place? It wasn't worth it. Obviously, everyone around me was reminding me that that was an absurd conclusion because just making to the Olympics is a ridiculous achievement in and of itself. But psychologically, that's where my perspective had slid to. And it took a really long time. I was, I was pretty ambivalent about whether I was going to continue fencing or not. And I kind of dragged myself through a couple of years of competition and began putting back together the pieces of my psyche that, you know, allowed me to, to get myself back to a decent mental space. And I, decided I wanted to go for another Olympic Games. I think it felt like some sort of attempt at redemption for, for me. And the 2007 to 2008 season, the precursor to the 2008 Olympics, was unbelievably hard psychologically. I literally almost lost my mind. I was not sleeping at competitions. I would travel to places like Iran or Turkey, you know, or, or France, and and I would sleep maybe a total of... 10 hours over the course of a four day weekend. And so I was just like dragging myself through what felt like extreme pressure to make it back to the Olympics and somehow kind of, you know, get back to the top in some way. And somehow I managed it, made the team arrive in Beijing and, and I managed to kind of pull it together and reframe my whole experience in a way that, you know, I'm like, you know what, I'm just going to, I'm just going to kind of let this be what it is. Uh, I'm going to just try and be present moment by moment, point by point. And in our last competition, a team event, uh, myself and my three teammates just had this sort of magical day where we were all in sync. We were all just kind of rising to the moment as the moments presented themselves and won a silver medal. And you know, I, it's hard to put into words like what that feels like. 
Um, the moment when we won that second match and it was a clear thing that we were going to win a medal. I mean, there were tears, there were absurd euphoric celebrations, you know, the fans in the stand, including my parents and friends were all just in beside themselves in tears. Um, and it was, you know, it was like one of the most magical moments in my entire life. I kind of like, you know, every time I think about it, I kind of relive that moment a little bit. I mean, that was just the moment that every athlete dreams of. When I talk with young people, some of my greatest lessons really were gained at the hardest moments in my life. I guess that's like a cool thing about being a mentor to be able to say, you know what? I've been through something like this. So with Jason, to not only be an Olympian, but to be an Olympian who failed. I just knew he's going to have some interesting insight into the development of young athletes. So the first thing I asked Jason about was the role of coaches. Like I mentioned before, Joseph's coach is his dad. And without being overly emotional about it, one of the most beautiful coaching relationships I've ever seen is in the love that Joseph's dad shows him. Like I've been sitting on the climbing mat at the bouldering gym and he'll just be like, dude, I love you so much. Like he'll just say that in the middle of the gym. And apart from like the unconditional love of parenting, what I see in this and what you're going to hear in Jason's description of exceptional coaching is the value of a coach's relational ability to really know their athlete, to understand their athlete, to respond effectively in different, highly charged and emotional situations. The difference between a good coach and a great coach isn't really technical skill. It's emotional intelligence and how well they translate that ability into relationship. Well, I think the first thing to say is that your relationship with your coach is one of the most important things to get right when it comes to developing a young athlete. And so, as I mentioned, my first coach, Daniel, the reason why he and I were so good for each other, or maybe more to the point, he was the perfect person to kind of nurture me as a young athlete was that I didn't need a lot of direction and pushing when it came to, you know, focusing on the sport and putting in the effort I needed, especially as I got older, um, you know, into my 16, 17, 18 kind of year old period. And then actually later, after college, I returned to working with Daniel after I finished school. Um, especially then, he was great at just sort of helping me keep things in perspective because, you know, I was always kind of like pushing myself, pushing myself, pushing myself. And Daniel was the one that was reminding me like, hey, like maybe take it easy today or like be kind to yourself or would crack a joke when I, it was clear that I was in a grumpy mood. And, you know, Vladimir, who was my Russian coach during my university years, was as world-class of a coach, you know, and whose credentials were arguably um, on paper better, 
he helped develop me from a technical, from a strategic standpoint, immeasurably. But the thing that didn't quite work for us as a pair was that at that point, I was so maniacally focused on trying to make it to the Olympics that his, the pressure that he put on me and that I put on myself kind of became a pressure cooker in that I was always trying to kind of please him and make sure that he thought that I was putting in all the work and he was always trying to kind of push me a little bit further. And so we ended up at a point where I just was not happy as a person because I'd kind of push myself over the edge well into what I would call the overtraining zone where I'd lost perspective on how to live a balanced life and how to keep the inputs that kept good energy coming in as opposed to just the, I am going to make it kind of energy. And so that balance I think is, is really important. And it, it depends so much on the young athlete, what they need, because some kids are unfocused and they need someone to help steer them and push them and narrow their, their focus to the things they need to be, you know, concerned with. And then others need to have fun and they need to have someone that they can laugh with. And so getting that chemistry right, I think is just the key. But there are also lots of coaches that adjust the way they interact with different athletes because they're able to sense that athlete's needs or their relational style or they're able to understand that athlete's interior mind sometimes better than the athlete and, and either kind of preemptively or reactively get ahead of any kind of like sticky zones that might be coming. When I started thinking about sports in the context of masculinity, one of the first quotes I read was from William Pollock, who pointed out, and this is a quote, Sports are the one arena in which many of society's traditional structures about masculinity are often loosened, allowing boys to experience parts of themselves that they rarely experience elsewhere. At their best, sports provide boys with a free atmosphere where they can be themselves and express a full range of emotions, whether from the exhilaration of a last-minute goal or the acute disappointment of being defeated by the opposing team, sports provide boys with a theater for the unfettered expression of their feelings. So that brings me back to Jason's experience at the Athens Olympics. When I asked him more intentionally about failure, he described the shame that he felt. He described the challenge of recovery and that same belief as Joseph that failure, especially as an athlete, is ever-present. Failure can feel a number of different ways. And I think it really depends on where you are in your career, what, how you feel like you have failed. Um, but some, some days it can feel like hot fire, you know? And what I mean by that is rage. And some days it can feel like sadness or hopelessness. And I think some of it is, it, a lot of it comes from kind of like, uh, the shame that you feel 
if you think that you have let other people down, whether that be your coach, your family, your friends, um, most of the time, I know for me, if I can just talk about my most um, prominent moment of failure, it was at the 2004 Olympics in that match against the Italian when I lost so badly. I was like a zombie afterwards. I kind of went back to the preparation room. I took my stuff off in a total haze. I went and I found, I went back to the stands to find my mom. And she came out of the stands. She was with my family that had traveled to Athens. Some of my, our family friends that had come. We had like a posse of maybe 15 people or something like that. And I pulled her individually out and we were in this empty hallway behind the stands because the event was still going on and I lost it. I, I don't think I have ever cried like that in, since maybe I was really, really young. And all I could say was like, like, I feel like such a failure. Like I felt like those people had traveled around the world to see me do well. And I had let them down. I let my coaches down. I, all I could think about was coming back from the Olympics and talking to all my friends that were, I just, I just, I just, all I felt was shame. And it took a really long time for me to realize that nobody cares, you know, they're just excited for you. And all of that pressure comes from within. It comes from the feeling that, you know, the fear that you're going to be ostracized or, that you're going to lose connection with the people that you, that you love. And obviously none of that happens, you know, or in very rare dysfunctional instances it does. But if you have healthy relationships with the people around you, that's totally untrue. And, and the sensation of failure comes from your interpretation of those events. So as it relates to like how coaches and family and friends can help you one, you need to kind of let it run its course because in the heat of the moment, whether it, whether you're feeling sadness or whether you're feeling anger, you know, trying to logic you through that process is not really helpful. So it needs to kind of like the energy needs to dissipate first, but once it does, the best thing that the people around you can do is just help gently help you reframe those events into a more accurate depiction of what they are, which was you hit a stumbling block and you know, you, you, things didn't unfold the way that you would have liked or, you know, would have been optimal for you in your career. But those events, how you, how you react to those events, how you take those feelings and put them back into your training and your sort of like psychological preparation in a productive manner make all the difference to how you're going to approach the next event and the likelihood that you're you're going to be able to do what you hoped you would you would have been able to do in the event where you failed. In theory, failure happens almost every time. And what I mean by that is there are certainly prominent moments where it's more than evident that you didn't live up to your potential, right? My 
Athens Olympics experience is a, is a great example of that. But the mindset of an athlete is kind of the it's never enough mentality in the sense that let's say you've achieved a result that you have never been able to achieve before. You know, you make a top eight in a national competition or you place third, you know, at an international event for your age and you've never done that before. Your brain automatically resets. It's like your new anchor point. So what success looks like automatically changes. And it's actually almost very, it's sometimes very difficult to celebrate that result. For at least it was for me personally. And unless you're winning a competition and you're dominating every single other competitor there by a large margin, you're always going to hit some stopping point. So it's hard to not walk away from every single competitive event feeling at least some rush with the emotions that come with failure. You may not call it a failure. Everyone around you may call it a success. You may even call it a success. But because so much of being an elite athlete is about competition with self, off almost every time the bar you set for yourself is higher than where you reach, um, even if that means you've achieved your, a result that you have never achieved before. Most athletes are like, I want to win, even when that's not really a realistic goal. But it's the goal that you set that helps you incrementally get closer and closer and closer and closer to it. And when you achieve it, you reset it. Jason was so articulate about the mental aspect of high-level athletic performance, I figured if there are parents, coaches, or any boys and young men engaged in athletics listening to this, I want them to hear this. And also, for the record, something interesting is that this isn't really solely related to athletics anyway. What he says could apply to any form of performance where there is high stakes, and honestly, that feels pretty relevant for pretty much any young person, simply anybody who just like writes an exam could get something from this. The mental game of an athlete is, as, a, an, as an athlete reaches the middle to the end of their career, it, in my personal opinion, and I think a lot of athletes would agree, it arguably becomes the most important element. And the reason for that is when you get out of this sort of youth period where there are a lot of physical disparities just based on who grew faster, who went through puberty faster and developed muscle quicker, um, you reach a point where everybody's kind of like at approaching their physical best and their technical best. And when you attend a competition like the Olympics, the majority of the athletes there on any given on on their best day could theoretically win the competition the question is whether they're able to put the pieces together of their skills and their potential to to actually do that and there are a lot of things that get in the way and the most important is the mental aspect of performance the aspects of how you respond to pressure and what you do, what you can do to kind of 
head off the types of things that tend to impede your ability to perform. And those are the skills that I hadn't really developed, at least not in, in a way that meaningfully helped me at the 2004 Olympics. Because what happens is that your brain registers that this moment is really important because I have to win because I need to make the team or I need to, I can't lose to this person or this person is worse than me. I should win. Those are all the types of things that tend to like set off this chain link event that where you spiral down into, you know, like the land of like stress and pressure and the word choke often comes up. Um, because what happens in those moments is that when you start to have those thoughts and your body starts to phys physiologically react in a way that produces stress, it produces more co like cortisol in your body, um, you know, and your, your heart rate goes up and you begin to kind of feel hot and sweaty and tingly in your arms, or at least that's how pressure manifested itself within me. It takes your attention away from what's happening in the moment, which is your opponent that's in front of you, the problems that are, you know, above you on, on the wall and all of that innate ability that you've internalized to react and respond in the most optimal way to those inputs becomes compromised because you're thinking about how you feel and you're like, Oh my God, like I'm not feeling good. That, am I going to choke? And then that thought, spirals you out of control and it takes your focus further and further away from what's important. Pressure is, you know, the, <laughs> the ultimate opponent, you know, like you're the opponent in front of you and not all sports have opponents in that way. But if you do enter in a combat sport, like fencing, like if you do have an opponent, like that opponent is, you know, something to be reckoned with. The second opponent, the more important opponent is yourself. How do you react to all of the craziness that's happening around you at a competition and all of the forces that are acting on you um, <laughs> that <laughs> whose intent are to hold you down? And I think that's the real skill of being an athlete or a performer in any realm is being able to navigate those pressures and forces um, with grace and in a way that it, you know, makes your performance seem effortless. The last thing we touched on was masculinity, because Jason isn't just a veteran athlete. He's also a man who is in the midst of delving really deeply into the world of masculinity, what it means for our identities our relationships, our cultural norms, the whole confluence of what manhood means today. And there's an unavoidable connection, right, between masculinity and sports. On one hand, there's researchers like Michael Thompson saying, uh, this is a quote, sports give boys an experience of being focused that they may never get in school. And let them, sports let them know that they're capable of achieving what they're capable of achieving when they're motivated. It brings out the best in them. Just listen to boys and men discuss sports and you'll discover that their conversations about idealism, character formation, psychology, and love. 
And, and on the other hand, or at the same time, there's researchers like David Cohen, who, and this is taken a bit out of context, but said, school sports define a pattern of aggression and dominating performance as the most admired form of masculinity. So I figured there has to be a middle ground. And who better to offer some insight into that but a former Olympian who's turned his attention to the world of masculinities? Yeah, I mean, I think masculinity as a construct for understanding how kind of boys are raised in the world factors majorly into these kinds of the world of competitive sport. And I guess the most prominent example of that is, especially in individual sports, is that, you know, you're as an athlete, you're kind of navigating the world through a hierarchy. Uh, or when I say that, I mean the sort of athletic space that you're in because competition allows you to understand where you fall because the result of your competition kind of tells you how you stack up against other guys. Don't get me wrong, like hierarchies are present in all sport. I think the sort of like orientation towards the seeking of status uh, and the maintenance of status is one of the kind of north stars for how culture teaches boys and men to navigate the world. So to that extent, you are kind of going more into this mechanism that can lead boys and men into places where, you know, they're thinking and behaving in slightly unhelpful ways. And I guess to give a very specific example of that, you know, I remember moments in my own career where, you know, I would lose a match that I thought I shouldn't lose. And I would be so furious that I would, you know, throw my fencing mask like across the room. And that kind of expression of, of rage is, may seem kind of insignificant, but it's that kind of unhelpful response to the event of losing, which in my mind is a kind of like loss of status because I'm either looking bad in front of the other fencers that are watching or my family or friends that um, I think represents a pattern that when we talk about harmful masculinity is, is generally how things tend to unfold. Guys are together in a group and, um, you know, they, they feel that their status is challenged and they reach for an unhelpful behavior to try and regain that. So to that extent, like sport can create an environment that is a pressure cooker for unhelpful behaviors around masculinity. And again, this happens in sport, like this happens with female athletes as well, but I think it's particularly problematic um, in men's sports. And in terms of like how as a coach or a parent to help a young athlete, a young male athlete kind of steer away from that. That's a really, really tricky question because obviously the, <laughs> there's so much intersectionality with respect to like how boys are socialized. Like it's not just masculine norms, you know, it's 
there's all these kind of different aspects, race, it's class privilege, it's et cetera, that form the way that we navigate the world as a, as a young man. Um, but I, I do think that teaching young boys the difference between healthy competitiveness and unhealthy competitiveness is, is like a very important and kind of nuanced way to kind of navigate parenting. But really my objective, especially later in my career, became like, how can I be at my best? That's healthy competition. Where competition becomes unhelpful is when you're trying to win just for the sake of winning. And especially when you'll go to unhealthy lengths to achieve that win. For example, when you start trash talking your opponent or, you know, to try and like play psychological games with them. I know a lot of people and a lot of athletes talk about how that's an effective tactic. I think that's maybe effective in, in, certain arenas of sport, but I think it's a terrible life practice. And so that's where there's a very kind of like clear distinction because you're violating norms of sportsmanship, you're learning bad behaviors. Um, and then also I would say, for example, com being competitive in the sports arena is very difficult, or excuse me, is being competitive in the sports arena is dif different from being competitive in the locker room, for example. So wanting to go out and win is one thing, but being amidst other guys who are talking about like, oh, like I was at this party last weekend and I hooked up with like two girls in the same party. And then you feeling like you need to compete with that person and one up them and either physically try and outdo them or to like make up some story about how you did the same thing. Like, that's not helpful competitiveness because that pushes guys into realms where they're accentuating these kinds of harmful behaviors that, that, that men ex begin to express from an early age that become patterns for them um, later on in life and can cause really serious problems. I'm going to conclude this episode on the idea that there is even more to boys' experiences in sports than training balance, emotional courage, patience, failure, and resilience, that these things are also intrinsically linked to who they are as young men. So the call to action then is for parents, teachers, and in particular coaches to see themselves not just as the leaders of young athletes, but as the caretakers of the next generation of men. That's also where I'm going to conclude the second season of Breaking the Boy Code. I'm not going to lie, it's been a marathon. One of the assumptions I made going into this project was that I have enough energy and passion for boyhood masculinity to, like what, design, coordinate, host, edit, and produce a podcast all on my own. The reality is that I don't. But the reality is also that I have had a team helping me get started and cheering me on from the very beginning, and that is the folks at Next Gen Men. So as I bring season two to an end, I'm excited to share that this podcast will be integrating more closely with the Next Gen Men podcast network, bringing in a new co-host, support team, and continuing to center the voices of boys themselves. 
Until season three, I'm Jonathan Reed, and I think recognizing the inherent potential for positive development in boys' spaces like sports teams and locker rooms is one of the greatest things male role models can do. Next Gen Men is an organization working towards a future where boys and men experience less pain and cause less harm. You can learn more at nextgenmen.ca. You can contact me at breakingtheboycode at gmail.com or at boypodcast on social media. Ask your boys about competition. Ask them what drives them and what it feels like to fail. Greater resilience comes from meaningful reflection, and meaningful reflection comes from mentors like you.